thinking about defense. Sometimes when we apologize, we are defensive, are we not? Yeah, we are. And so that's the tense of the word that Peter is using here in this particular passage of Scripture. So we defined these for you a couple of weeks ago just for a review. Apologetics is the task of giving a reasoned defense of Christianity, of our faith. We're not uh, secularists. We're not Muslims. We're not, uh, uh, we don't subscribe to Judaism per se. We are Christians. So apologetics is the task of giving a reasoned defense of Christianity in light of the objections that are raised against it, and they're myriad, and then not only giving a defense, but also offering positive evidence on its behalf. This morning, we'll, at, uh, toward the end of the message, we'll go to Jude chapter 3, which we've preached uh, from about two or three years ago now in a series of messages entitled uh, uh, The uh, Precious Little Gems, Precious Little Jewels that are contained in Scripture. So we'll look at that. Apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. We talked about the five solos, okay? Christ alone saves us by faith alone, through grace alone, as moved by the Scriptures alone, so that God alone may receive the glory. And we've taught this several times here at Flat Creek. Both are necessary, the apologetics and polemics. Apologetics, defense of the Christian faith, polemics. We're going to talk about that this morning is the task of criticizing. Yes, there are times when we need to be critical, not necessarily of individual, but certainly of the culture, to criticize and to refute alternative views. We are reading from the Bible. The Bible criticizes aberrant cultures. And then the Bible also refutes alternative views. Both are necessary, apologetics and polemics, to positively define that the Christian faith is a reasoned faith, and also from that to criticize and to repudiate a view of the world that is contrary to Scripture. Uh, This morning we may move into talking about... We'll bring people to a, can we bring people to a neutral stance? Well, the answer to that is no. None of us are neutral. So we'll examine that as we move through the scriptures. If we don't do it this morning, we'll do it next week. So that's the ready to answer. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Secondly, he talks about a reason for hope. Apologetics is a, the keenness of a reasoned faith has always been under attack. Uh, Much of the New Testament written in order to refute alternative views about who Jesus was and is. William Wilberforce. Now that name should mean something to you. I've mentioned him, it's been a while, but I've mentioned him several times from the pulpit. Wilberforce, along with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, were two uh, individuals. Wilberforce was a a member of parliament. 
And John Newton was a Baptist pastor after his conversion. And Wilberforce and Newton, along with others, were responsible for uh, the removal of slavery in England. And they also sowed the seeds for the removal of chattel slavery here in America. And so Wilberforce in 1829, and basically his biography, wrote this. In an age when infidelity abounds, do we observe believers carefully instructing their children in the principles of the faith they profess? Now this was written almost 200 years ago. That question is a valid question today. As parents... As grandparents, do we observe believers carefully instructing their children in the principles of the faith that they possess? Or do they furnish their children with arguments for the defense of that faith? Now here's a man that the Lord used, along with many others in England during this time, 200 or so years ago, to basically outlaw chattel slavery a believer who could defend his faith. And one of the reasons that chattel slavery was was outlawed in the United Kingdom was because of the faith of these men and women. So they took their faith seriously and they were able to defend their faith. Next slide. So Peter is saying you need to be ready... And you need not only to be ready, but you need to be able to defend the faith that has been gifted to you by the Spirit of God. So in order to defend your faith, in order to defend my faith, it requires a knowledge. Okay, this is not emotion. It requires a knowledge of what you believe. And the ability to articulate it, the the ability to clearly state it, and notice, notice what he says, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, understanding that whoever we will share our faith with is made in the image of God. They are in the Imago Dei just as you and I, and if not for the grace of God, we would not be saved. So we must always approach individuals humbly, but with the understanding that we have a reasoned faith. He uses the word gentleness, meekness, or humility. And this is representative of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit is always under control. We don't lose our tempers. We don't lose our tongues. When we, when an individual, when a believer is uh, empowered by the Spirit of God, they are always in control. He talks about perseverance. He talks about reverence. He talks about fear. A healthy reverence for God. In order for us to have a knowledge of the Scriptures, there needs to be a healthy reverence for God. Not the man upstairs. Not my good buddy that loves me in spite of who I am. Yes, God loves you in spite of who you are, but he is not going to leave you like you are. 
Peter was not left as he was. Paul was not left as he was. John was not left as he was. Ernie was not left as he was. A healthy reverence for truth and a healthy reverence for the person to whom you speak. We need to be gracious. We need to be firm. We need to speak the truth in love, but we also need to be gracious. So the defense of our faith is made possible because we have come to Christ alone, through faith alone. And that faith is a prepared faith. It's not a performance faith. It's a prepared faith. Properly prepared to carefully, thoughtfully, reasonably, and biblically to give everyone who asks a clear reason for your faith. Not that you were born in a Christian home, which many of you were, and I was. That's well and good, but that's not what saved me. Jesus is who saved me. An inability to be rational and to understand the Christian faith and to clearly articulate it sometimes causes us to strive to become hostile and to attack the unbeliever. We must keep this in the back of our minds at all times. The gospel is always misunderstood by sinners. Always. I misunderstood it until the Spirit of God moved in my heart. You misunderstood it until the Spirit of God moved in your heart. It is always misunderstood until the Spirit moves us to faith. What did Paul say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there has to be the exposure of an unbeliever to Jesus through the word. Has to be. Daniel Doriani in his commentary on 1 Peter, which one of the uh, four or five that I am using, said this. He said, the path is obvious. We need scripture daily. Meditate on it so that its truth sticks, uh, sinks rather into the mind and soul. He says, we are to listen to our secular friends and to our culture. He goes on to say this. We prepare for unforeseen challenges by preparing daily for what we can foresee. The path is obvious. We read scripture daily and we meditate on it. That's what we just said here so that it, the truth sinks into mind and soul. How do our friends, our unbelieving friends, object to the faith? What makes them object to the faith? Think through this. What offends or seems senseless to them? Think through this. And what resonates with them? 
think through this. We also look for answers to the objections as we read, as we converse, and as we listen to Christians' teaching. That's part of what's going on here this morning. We look for answers as we read, as we converse, as we listen to Christian teaching. Finally, while we must not fall into a mere subjectivism, who Jesus is for me. People don't want to know that. And what he does for me. Because they can turn the tables on you. And they say, well, this is what I do for me. We should be ready to speak personally and tell people why we hope in Jesus. The answer we give can be a formal self-defense. Peter says here, a term fitting, uh, fits a hearing whether before Roman authorities, communist officials, secular scholars, or neo-pagans, new pagans. Yet we should also be ready to defend the faith informally with friends. Jesus supplements Peter's point in Matthew chapter 10. As he sends his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom, he knows that they are too new in their faith to prepare for every possibility. He knows that, yet he sends them anyway. So he makes a promise, and he tells them, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is Matthew 10, 19 and 20. This is an immense comfort. Jesus was a pastor in sense, a shepherd. And so he is comforting his disciples. An immense comfort. And a good word for those that are prone to dream or to worry that the success of God's cause depends on the quality of their performance. Not performance. Yet, the promise that the Spirit will speak through us in crisis does not abrogate the demand that we prepare as best we can to present a reason for the faith that lies within us. Are you able to do that? Do you desire to do that? Next slide, Mr. Logan. Can you articulate your faith? Articulate just means clearly explain. Can you clearly explain your faith so that another understands it? Now, yes, we ought to repent of our sins, confess them, ask Jesus into our hearts. But there's much, much more to the gospel than this. Do you struggle with thinking of enough doctrinal truth to have hope in your salvation? 
why do we teach? Because it provides hope. The Lord could use every word, or just one verse basically, John 3.16, to evangelize the world. But he's given us a book with almost a million words in the English language to teach us the story of his great creation and redemptive power. And we do that so that we may praise him. Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 13, closing out that particular epistle, examine yourselves. So this morning, that's the clarion cry for all of us here this morning. Examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Am I a believer? And why am I a believer? Paul goes on to write, test yourself. How do you do that? The book. Sometimes a crisis of faith occurs, and Satan uses that to tempt you. What's the first thing that Satan did when Jesus began his ministry? He tested him. He tested him in ways that you and I will never be tested. And yet Jesus, after fasting for 40 days, he was hungry, weary, exhausted, and still withstood the wiles of the devil. Our faith is always in Christ alone. And we must all, you have to point people to Jesus. You must point people to Jesus. But we do need to know what the scripture teaches about Jesus. We need to know this. And that's what verse 18 says. That's the reason I read it this morning. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. The unjust to you and I. That he might bring us to God. He might reconcile us back to God. Well, preacher, isn't, isn't faith just a, isn't belief just a leap of faith? I've heard it said many, many, many times. It's just a leap of faith. Are we to even bother with the credibility or rationality of the truth claims of the Bible? Just believe, only believe. Yes, indeed, only believe. But that's not what Peter's saying. Peter is not saying take a leap of faith. It's not found in this text, and it's not found in the Bible. It's found in our minds to try to simplify the glory of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've been saved any length of time, you should be able to give a reason for your faith. And that reason includes an understanding of your sin. No one is ever saved without an understanding of their sin. And their sin against God. Not against you and I. 
which obviously is a result of sin, but a sin against the divine creator who is the glorious redeemer. That needs to be driven home. And so we have to understand the depravity of sin in each and every person that has ever been born, whether they be adults, an old gray-haired guy like me, or whether they be newborns. That's part of why God gave us this book to understand. Believers are not to leave our minds in the parking lot. When you come in here on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday evening, whenever, I hope, <laughs> I hope you brought your mind with you. And I hope we're ready to look at the word in such a way that we can reason together. Come now and let us reason together, Isaiah wrote. We're to think according to the word of God. We're to seek the mind of Christ. Paul wrote this to the church at Philippi and to the church at Colossae as well. And then Jude said we're to contend earnestly for the faith. We're fight for it. For we will never end this life on this mortal earth. We will never see a peace to the war between the truth of the gospel and sinners. The peace of God comes through Jesus Christ alone. Now the Bible, the Bible's author is the Logos, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos. It's given to us to be understood. And we cannot understand it if we turn our minds off, if we close our minds to careful study, to godly preaching and teaching. The Logos, the Word, is sufficient. Now, when we get to 2 Peter, I'm going to spend more time on this, but just to give you uh, an insight this morning. There is the sufficiency of Scripture, and when we are sharing our faith with others, it must include Scripture. There's no neutral point. The Word of God is what convicts. It must include Scripture. The Westminster Confession and the Baptist faith and message would define it this way. Scripture is the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, our salvation, our faith, and life, it is either express, expressly set down in Scripture, and here's the wonderful portion of this, or by good and necessary consequences, it can be deduced from Scripture. Now, how do we deduce it? We think about it. We meditate on it. We study it. If, you listen, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Look up here. While this, this is not on the slide. The Bible does not tell us everything we need to know. The answer to every question in life is not in the Bible. That's not the purpose of it. 
Well, if I knew the Bible, I would know all God knows. That just shows that we're not thinking. It does not give explicit instructions about most things in life. That's not why Jesus gave uh, the word gave it to us, why the Spirit of God gave it to us. It's not going to give an answer to every question. It does give answers to all of the pertinent, important, eternal, not temporal, eternal things of life. It doesn't have an answer for everything, not because the Bible is incomplete or insufficient, because that was never God's intention. Good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture. Next slide. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, talking about Jesus Christ. You, Father, have put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. All of us here this morning are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Eight billion plus people on this earth are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer goes on, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Subjected in a way that is supernatural. Not natural, supernatural. But nonetheless, Christ is Lord, King of Kings, Prince of Peace. That must be pressed into the heart of the unbeliever. You, as an unbeliever, are subject. Jesus, whether you think so or not. Peter speaks of faith. Faith can be defined as a need to apply the Bible and to use biblical principles. It's a matter of sensible wisdom. And wisdom, we'll speak more about wisdom when we come to verse 17, 16 and 17. Wisdom is lost in our culture today. We are not looking for wise people. We're looking for pertinent people. We're looking for performers. We're not looking for wisdom. It's a matter of sensible wisdom. In other words, to govern and discipline oneself by the use of reason. Peter also speaks of hope. That's what we're looking at in this particular um, uh, bullet point here. The confidence... Hope, biblical hope, is the confidence that by integrating God's redemptive acts in the past with trusting human responses in the present, you and I have a responsibility to respond to God. Believers will experience the fullness of God's goodness both in the present and in the future. We have been redeemed. We will eventually be glorified already but not yet. 
Biblical faith rests on the trustworthiness of God to keep his promises. God said it. The little simile goes. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Something similar to that. Peter speaks of the hope in you. <laughs> it's not a hope in me. It's a hope in you. Because he's writing to churches. A hope in you. Not individually. But corporately. A shared belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which should define and unify the Flat Creek family. This capability God gave us. Look back, look back if you would, at verse 9. <clears throat> verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. It's twice he's used it in the his first epistle. You were called to this. Not just the preacher. Not just the teachers. You were called to this. It is our responsibility from the time that we become converted to the time the Lord sees fit to take us home. How many of us, again, can make a clear statement of the reason for the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear in terms that an unbeliever can understand. Next slide. Psalm 107, David wrote, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You know, most testimonies that we hear, in the, uh, that we hear about people coming to know the Lord are heard in the church. We're, in just a couple of months, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving, and generally on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we, we have a, a testimony service, and folks come, and we give them opportunity to stand to share their faith with them. And that's wonderful. That's a good thing. That's a good opportunity. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But the redeemed of the Lord have to say so in a world that doesn't want it to say so. not just within the church. We have to relate the good news to a lost and dying world that is no friend of grace. That is our call. That's what Peter was doing. Remember, Peter, in just a short period of time after writing these two epistles, would be crucified. You know, it's okay to answer a question I don't know. And if we try to make something up, then we're just showing how foolish we are, how unwise we are. It conveys to others that you are human. And because of that, we're not self-righteous. We're not a, a know-it-all. We're not an arrogant thing. The purpose of sharing our faith is not to prove to others just how much I know about the Christian faith. That's not the purpose. It is in love, mercy, kindness, and grace to present Jesus alone who saves. One of the most intelligent men that perhaps has ever lived is a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. 
He's been with the Lord for over 40 years now. I think he died in 1981 or 82, somewhere in that time frame. Francis Schaefer actually was born in Pennsylvania, and he went to Hampton Sydney College, just a few miles down the road here, for his undergrad, and then went on to Westminster Seminary for his uh, uh, doctrinal work. 1974, in Lusanne, Switzerland, the Congress of World Evangelization, Billy Graham was there, a number of other people were there. John Stott was there, D.A. Carson was there, a number of individuals. And Schaefer, who was an elderly man then, probably in his late 60s, if not his early 70s, he stated believers must provide honest answers to honest questions. Now, granted, there are some people that are just going to be... Um, flippant, but there are people that want to know honest answers. And he said, you know, I have to use sound doctrine because it is vital to the health of the church, and the truth must come in contact with the modern world. If Christianity is truth, as the Bible claims, it must touch every aspect of life, and Christianity demands that we have enough compassion to learn the questions of our generation, the idols of our generation. For us, it's abortion, the LGBT movement, and self, the idols of our generation. Self never changes. Answering questions is hard work. All of you have taken tests. Most of you have taken tests. You know, preparing for tests, answering questions. Some of you as teachers are give, have given to it. It's hard work. He goes on. He says, do not assume that faithfulness is simply rejecting the creeds, reveling in our reception of sound doctrine. Reciting, rather, reciting the creeds, reveling in our reception of sound doctrine. No, loving our neighbor requires compassion, the ability to listen carefully to the questions of a generation, and then to pray and do the hard work. Because there are people that have honest inquiries. When people have honest inquiries, that's because the Spirit of God is moving in them. They don't have honest inquiries without the Spirit of God. How do you know? They are honest about their inquiries. A reason for the hope. That's apologetics. Let's take a few moments here to look at polemics. Now, this is the portion that people don't like. You mean we really have to criticize or we would... Well, we're going to look at a couple of passages here. We have to understand that today, truth is not thought to be objective. But subjective. Apologetics has given a reason defense of Christianity. Polemics is the task of criticizing and refuting alternative views. 
So we've got to ask the question, begs the question, did Jesus criticize? <coughs> well, let's look and see. Let's go to Matthew 16. This is the Matthew's record of Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's found in verse 16 of Matthew 16. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, the same Peter writing this epistle, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Jesus said. Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. By the way, the word Simon or the name Simon, it's interesting that Jesus calls him Simon until toward the end of his ministry when he begins to refer to him as Peter. Simon means shaky. And Peter was definitely shaky. So Mr. Shaky... For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a, that's a compliment that Jesus pays to Peter. And I also say to you that to you, Peter, okay, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, he commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Very strange, strange uh, request. Verse 21, but from that time on, Jesus began to show to his disciples. He's focusing now on a select group of people. The world could not understand. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The world does not understand that. There's no neutral ground there. The world is not my kingdom. And we are working hard to make it his kingdom. We're part of the kingdom. The kingdom is going home to be with the king. It's not going to stay here. Never was intended to stay here. The Father is going to create a new heaven and a new earth where people of the kingdom live and reign with the king. So he's talking to his disciples. Hey, guys, don't share this with the world. They're not going to understand it, but I'm going to share this with you. Notice what he said. He began to show to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. The gospel, okay? Then Peter took him aside. And he began to rebuke him. In strong language, rebuke. 
chastise it. Far be it from you, Lord, this should not happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Did he criticize? Absolutely. How do we know? Notice what he says. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. He goes on to begin teaching about the need to deny self, take up the cross, and follow him. Did he criticize? Yes. This is just one example. You find it in other places as well. Did he correct? Now turn back to Matthew 5. Now we're not going to read all of this because this is most of the Sermon on the Mount. But go back to chapter 5. The Lord did not come to tap everybody on the head and say, everything you're doing is fine. Just keep doing it. I'm here to preach and teach. Then I'm going to be crucified and go back home. No, he came to correct. He came to criticize. He came to challenge. He came to make disciples. And look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, I'm correcting you. You've thought for years about this incorrectly. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Hear this. It is a sin to lie. It is a sin to believe a lie. But I say unto you, and this is just one of many, Look, uh, verse 27, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, I'm correcting you, you've got it wrong for years. I say to you, verse 31, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear uh, falsely, but shall perform uh, your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, how many times have we misapplied? We've misread and misapplied Scripture. Now, thankfully, God forgives us for that, but understand something. Jesus can criticize and Jesus can correct because he's God. And this has to be portrayed to the unbeliever. There is no stronger proof of the deity of Christ than the fact that he corrects. This is, the, this is the reading of the Old Testament Torah. This is what the Pharisees said, and Jesus corrects them. But I say to you, did he correct them? Absolutely. He did. Go one more slide. I want to look at this and we'll close this morning. In Luke 16, Jesus said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, and 
neither will they be convinced that someone should raise from, rise from the dead. The world is not our home. Now, we work very, very hard to make it our home. We need to make it as comfortable as possible. We need to enjoy it. The Lord has given us this life to enjoy, but I'm here to tell you this is not our home. That needs to be conveyed to our children. It needs to be conveyed to our grandchildren. They will not believe. There's a willful intent here. Neither will, be they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, who is he speaking about? Obviously, speaking about himself. Jude 3, turn with me there with that. This will close. I covered it a couple of years ago. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail just to hit some high points here. Jude is a half-brother of the Lord was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ as, as James was. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied, be multiplied to you. Beloved, when I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I changed my mind. The Spirit of God changed my mind. I was going to write to you about what it means to be born again, but I found out what's more important as the Spirit moved in me is to correct you because you're not contending for the faith. A ready faith is worth contending for because it gives us a reason for hope. Jude wants you and I, believers in the pews, to be good theologians. Now, obviously, you don't need to have degrees, enough degrees to be a thermometer. That's not what he's talking about. But do you care about the purity of biblical teaching and truth? Do you care about it? He wants us to be greatly concerned about these things because purity of biblical teaching makes a church strong. Not just preaching, the purity of biblical teaching makes a church strong. It is our personal responsibility to uphold historic biblical Christian teaching. Doctrine is just teaching. Christian teaching. And to contend for the faith alone in Christ alone. Spurgeon said, we are trustees of a divine deposit of invaluable truth. And we must be true to our trust at all costs. I may have told you this before when, when Spurgeon was preaching in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. There were about 10 to 12 women in the basement of the church. Uh, Spurgeon manuscript most of his sermons. And then 
in the basement of the church, there were, it just early on, there were uh, pipes from where he would preach down into the basement so they could hear his voice. And so they would have scribes. These ladies were scribes. And the first lady would take the first paragraph and so forth on down the line. We have almost every sermon that Spurgeon preached back in the 1850s to 1890s today because of the faithfulness of these women that contended for the faith. They were serious. They cared for the faith. Jude said you to struggle for this. It is a struggle. It's hard work. Whoever stands behind this pulpit, whoever stands to teach you, has prepared. It's hard work. It's some of the hardest work I've done. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about mentally. That's work too. Mental work is work. Employ the mind by standing firm on the word of God. We're to do this to refute the naysayers. Next Sunday we'll go into second. We'll start to look at Second Peter just for a brief moment to begin to expand on the reason for the hope that lies within you. So I want to leave you with this this morning. The very reason that we are born again is because 2,000 years ago, there were men and women that sacrificed their lives so that we might have a faith that is worthy to be contend, contend, uh, to contend for. My mom and dad shared the gospel with me for a number of years. It was in a church service that I came to know the Lord as my Savior. I've said this numbers of times. I certainly didn't know at that time what God expected of me. I needed to know that he was God the Son. needed to know that. I needed to know that I was a grave sinner. I needed to know these things. And so do your lost friends. No neutral ground. Love them. Share the faith with them. Pray for them. Prepare for them and present to them Jesus Christ alone. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the challenges that are contained in the word. Father, forgive us because we are all negligent when it comes to sharing our faith, to contending for the faith, to prepare for the faith and sharing. And Lord, help us not to be, to, uh, help us, Father, rather to be humble not to be prideful when we have opportunity to, to share faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, may we always be committed to sharing you and you alone. We love you this morning because you first loved us. And so if we love you, we should want to defend you. I pray that if there's one here today that does not know you, Savior, that you may move in their heart to bring them to repentance and then a ready faith in receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. As children of God, 
comfort us with the assurance that you loved us enough to give us your word in the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we will sing this morning one verse to a closing hymn. And if you're here today and you're not certain that Jesus is your Savior, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, you need to examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith. There's no, no sin in that. In fact, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. A number of our folks have thought perhaps that they were believers and then the Spirit of God moved in their heart to challenge them and to change them. That's a good thing. We praise the Lord for that. So as we sing this morning, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord as your Savior, we encourage you to come. We can't save you, but we can with an open Bible take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you have some questions. And that's a good thing. Genuine questions are a good thing. We want to be able to, to help you and to minister to you. And you can see myself or Vance or any uh, others perhaps here this morning after the service. We'd be glad to set up a time to talk with you. But don't leave here without having that assurance. As a child of God, the Lord may be, you know the Lord is Savior, which is a wonderful thing. And perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to make that the first order of obedience. That's what is contained in Scripture. And unite with us here at Flat Creek. As a child of God, we're, we're, I'm neg negligent of all of these things. And I have to constantly ask the Lord, confess these things, ask the Lord to strengthen my heart and my soul. And may I never forget that when I'm sharing the faith with someone else, that I'm doing so to encourage them to come to know the wonderful Savior that I know, that you know. What number? Brother 275? 275. 275. The Lord's spoken.